0: Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are broadcasting as one of the many fine shows as part of the Now Playing Network. Here in the Directors Club, we use the episodes to take a look at a director's entire body of work, their legendary films, their labors of love, and hidden gems amongst their filmographies. You can never tell what sort of themes and connections can come up when you take a look over the scope of a director's entire filmography. Come join us on the film journey. And what a journey do we have for you today? The mighty, magnificent Orson Welles.
1: You listen, you've been called it many times. You've been called a genius. Many times. Yes, it's just one of those words, you know. It's one of those words. I suppose there have only been two or three geniuses in this century. We all know who they are, you know. Really? I suppose, yes. What, Einstein and Picasso and somebody in China we haven't heard about, you know. <laughs> so you, you, you don't accept the... Uh, oh, I accept anything I get. <laughs> <laughs> but but between friends, you know, there aren't many of them. No.
0: And I, I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't want to try to edge my way into uh, an
1: elevator that, uh, for geniuses only, going up, you know. Hey, Al, I've been uh, looking forward to this one for a while. Yeah, yeah, Brad, myself as well. So talking about Orson Welles, kind of like our earlier uh, Herzog show, I think we need to go into some biography because here's a guy where every single film is very much informed uh, by the person he is, by his background. And so a little unusual for us. We're going we're gonna to talk about a little bit of Orson Welles's pre-film life. Because he had a really, really rich life before he ever even got into making movies. He had a rich life before he hit puberty. This is a guy (laughs) who, who, uh, when he was a kid, he met Harry Houdini. And from a very early age, he was... Considered a child prodigy. His mother was very clear that she did not want a young child running around the house, but more someone who uh, was a little adult. And hmm. he filled that role very quickly. He, by the age of seven, knew King Lear backwards and forwards. By the age of 10, he had written a critique of Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Dharasutra. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, so, yeah, just like how most adults do. (laughs) (laughs) So from as soon as he could speak, he was labeled as a genius. And the context of that is we're going to be talking about difficulties he's had working with Hollywood, working in the studio system, And what that word genius might mean from an artistic point of view, but also from the point of view of how to get movies made. You know, sometimes some words can be thought up as like trigger warnings. In other Mm -hmm. words, the, the,
0: the act of bringing them up causes these emotions and feelings to just come up in people's heads and come to people's minds. And one of these that trips so many wires in so many ways is the term genius, This is a term that's been applied to Wells like throughout his life. It's part of his legacy. And that word in some ways opens doors for people, but in some ways it imprisons the person being called a genius and it imprisons. Sometimes it imprisons the audience in a way like for example, his work, can be thought of as these unassailable classics. And that every move he makes upon it is just this work of some divine inspiration. But then also, the genius thing works under the studio system. It's kind of a scarlet letter in a way. Because it's about a guy who's going to follow to his own beat, to the complete exclusion of the
1: collaborative parts of filmmaking. And it was used in that very way as an attack against Wells when he was... Fired from RKO, they started taking out ads that said "Showmanship, not genius," <laughs> and everyone knew who they were talking about. There, yeah, there you go. So uh, another aspect of Wells's childhood was his love of magic. And as much as the, you know, Shakespeare and literature and theater were his obsessions, he also considered himself a magician did magic tricks uh, all the way through his life, and if you kind of look at his attitude towards the film he makes, he brings on that kind of, actually, ironically enough, that showmanship that the studios were complaining that they were going to replace Wells with. He provides that, too, in this kind of way of presenting himself, not just as a filmmaker, but as a personality.
0: Yeah, he seems to me that he takes... This showmanship and gives it another look, gives it a closer look, gives a little extra awareness that is something more than maybe studios would have wanted (laughs) in terms of when they want showmanship, they want pure entertainment. But Wells seemed to always like push things further and push things off kilter enough so that you, if you were an audience member and you would see a Wells film, you would be aware that there's something more going on, perhaps more than you were expecting and more that you wanted when you were about
1: to see the movie in the first place. <laughs> exactly. When he, would, he grew up uh, right here in Illinois, and by the age of 13, he was already directing numerous high school plays and was condensing Shakespeare works in high school as he would uh, much later in his film career. Oh my God! And so he's a proto Max Fisher from uh, Rushmore. He he might have made <laughs> Ma- Max Fisher seem uh, modest by wow. by comparison. He himself has said that he was kind of a a handful as a youth. Uh, but then, when it was time for him to pursue his career, he uh, he went to Ireland to try to work as a as an actor at Dublin's Gate Theater, which is a prestigious company out there. Told them he was a big uh, Broadway star. He, he was not above a little uh, illusion, this magician, mm-hmm. and they they hired him and. At a very young age, his career started to skyrocket, and when he got back to America, his first big success was a production of Macbeth, which became known as the Voodoo Macbeth in 1936 because it took place in Haiti, featured an all-black cast, and changed the text and the the vibe of the play, which which we'll talk about the film version later, into something that suited this uh, Haitian voodoo environment. Hmm. It makes me wonder if that was something
0: that was kind of acceptable at the time or was this uh, a kind of a revolutionary
1: move to reinterpret Shakespeare in this way with this this kind of a cast Shakespeare has always been up for reinterpretation throughout the 400 years since his death so that in and of itself would not have been too surprising what would be surprising was because of the racial segregation of the time for uh, white producers including him and John Houseman to basically be breaking racial barriers by working with an all-black cast in the, uh, I believe it was the New York Negro Theater. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it was a huge success And, and, and it put him on the map and just briefly kind of go through some of his plays because each one of them has like an innovation that... Shows what kind of guy we're dealing with. And again, this is all going to be before his giant breakthroughs. And he's still such a young man. So he co-writes a play called Horse Eat Hat in 1936. And it's based on the, uh, the French comedy, The Italian Straw Hat, and starred Joseph Cotton. In this play, which is a, which is a comedy, basically he destroyed the set nightly. As part of the play, to show kind of the fictional world falling in, a, in and of itself, he, he made that happen physically. Oh, okay. And then his production of Julius Caesar from 1937 was a modern dress, and this has been done a lot of times since then, but took aim at Hitler and Mussolini coming to power at the time and portrayed the political mechanisms of, of Caesar's time as fascist. So it was uh, presented as an anti fascist screed, which uh, again we are used to now, but it would have been very eye opening in 1937.
0: Right, because at the time there was still like a, a
1: level of controversy over whether like the communists or the fascists were the worst uh, opponent. Right, the war, World War II had not started yet, but in Orson Welles's circles, uh, he has he always been very political. He saw what Hitler and Mussolini were up to, and and him and his uh, his team, which at this point is the famed Mercury Theater, went on the attack.
0: He was the head of it with Hausman, and mm-hmm. uh, and he had a, a crew of people and a cast that would
1: go around from play to play. Right. Right. Okay. Right, and uh, this particular period of his life was. Uh, chronicled uh, recently in Richard Linkletter's film, Me and Orson Welles. One film that was based on another Welles theatrical production, although not one that he wrote or directed, was The Cradle Will Rock, which was a 1999 film directed by Tim Robbins, based on a very storied production that the Mercury Theater worked on with an author named Mark Blitzstein who created this uh, musical that was overtly uh, a pro-labor attack on big business. It was referred to as an opera of labor. And it created quite the controversy in Washington. And basically through a lot of very involved bureaucratic maneuvers that you could uh, see if you watched the Tim Robbins film, they got the theater uh, where it was to first be performed shut down on opening night. So the cast and crew walked 20 blocks to another theater they were able to procure at the last minute, and because of some union regulations, couldn't actually perform on stage, but sat in the audience and performed the play from the audience. (laughs) Oh,
0: that's a phenomenally cool (laughs) move.
1: (laughs) So... There's a lot more theater, but uh, but moving briefly on to radio, if, if you ask people who Orson Welles was prior to Citizen Kane being released, they'd say, hey, he's the radio uh, star. He was the voice of the shadow. The Mercury Theater radio shows adapted dozens of classics. Most famously, of course, was the War of the Worlds adaptation in 1938, which uh, was the uh, infamous Halloween episode, Presented as a series of simulated news bulletins that uh, people listening to got a little panicky about thinking there were was an actual Martian attack taking place.
0: Mm-hmm. His enthusiasm for um, charlatanism, say, or chicanery, mm-hmm. like made. Uh, kind of a Nash-made a national incident out of it as in like people were so convinced by his um depictions on the over the radio airwaves that they literally called into authorities and announced that they had seen these uh martians appearances themselves.
1: Yes, um and he while probably was uh, not expecting that reaction, looked back on that incident with much glee at the magic trick he performed there. Mm -hmm. But he was now prominent enough that he was going to go into film. So his first film is not the one you're thinking, because it wasn't a real film. He did a film that was associated with a play he was working on, called both the film and the play, called uh, Too Much Johnson. Hmm. Interesting title. Yes, yes. Everyone can insert their own uh, comments here. (laughs) And it it came out in uh, 1938. It's available only in the last couple decades for viewing, but it it doesn't really make much sense when you're watching it because it wasn't meant to stand alone as a film. What was going to happen was the action of the play would stop and start at certain points and then bits of the film would be projected in the theater to complement the play more like a performance art installation thing than an actual film
0: thing that people deliberately see independently
1: exactly so if if you're if you're to watch the film now you need to keep this in mind especially that that it would be the film which goes a little over an hour, is. Longer than it would have been in in the final uh, format, which by the way never happened because the theater they were working on could not get their projection facilities uh, in order. Mm. Uh, It's basically about uh, Joseph Cotton is the star. It's 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 a silent film. It's it's a silent uh, wacky comedy in the uh, Keystone Cops. Style and Joseph Cotton is uh, sleeping with another man's wife, and he comes in just as as Cotton is is climbing out the window. Knows who it is. Is ready to seek revenge. And the entirety of the film is basically an extended chase. Between Cotton running away and this uh, cuckold husband chasing him through the cities, up ladders, uh, out in the fields, past vehicles, in, in all kinds of wacky comedy manner.
0: Okay. That leads me to a wonder on Wells's. One of Wells's motifs through the films is that if there is one, one major common thread that comes in through all, so many of his films, it is the sheer nerve Mm -hmm. the sheer energy and audacity that you were describing earlier that he gave to his plays he always would destroy the box that people would go and put him in he would always rage against it and try to go and uh, put things together while thinking outside in numerous dimensions even his more sedate films i find like have a kind of audacity to them in the, in, in the details and in the choices that he makes.
1: You're, you're, you're so right. That's just never gone. And what that has led to is not only this amazing catalog of films that we're going to discuss, but also uh, a catalog of films that never got made. Because for every project he succeeded in bringing to the screen, even though some of them were compromised by studio interference or lack of budget, he has a whole bunch of projects that just never happened. The first one, which was going to be his big film debut, was an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which he was working on in 1940, and the plan was for him to play both the character of Marlowe and the character of Kurtz (laughs) to show how the journey through the heart of darkness changed uh, the main character most of you probably know this but this uh, eventually did get filmed as Apocalypse Now but and the other interesting thing about this version was that it was all going to be filmed first person so that the camera is seeing whatever Marlowe is seeing at the time. See that's the audacity that I was talking about They
0: had already been making films for decades since then, but who would think to do it in that manner? There were already these established rules for how you're going to set up a film, how you set up a scene, how you frame people in a shot. And so you look at that idea that you just said, as we will in so many other Wells choices, for good and for ill, by the way, and Mm -hmm. just go, who would think that?
1: (laughs) But of course, Heart of Darkness never did get made because the type of production it was was going to be a giant expense to the studio, and they were not ready to trust Orson Welles with that story. Welles showed
0: a bit of blithe, unconcern with how such a first-person viewpoint was going to go across for a studio, Because he had such a great level of enthusiasm for just the tools of filmmaking and what you could do with film. I believe he had a great quote where he said, being able to create a film is like having the greatest toy set a child ever had. The greatest train set a child ever had, right? And think about that. That is probably informs a lot of what makes his stuff so singular is because he is a person who had all this phenomenal ability and this talent when he started to make films, but he didn't have to go through any of the arduous processes of collaboration and endless compromises that are involved in the mechanics of making films.
1: Right. Well, Wells has said he started at the top and worked his way down. And that's where kind of our amateur psychology comes into play, because we've talked about how he grew up and the genius mantle and what that does to a guy's personality, which is if he doesn't realize that he can be wrong, that he needs to bring in other points of view, then, you know, you're going to have a certain level of stubbornness that's complicated here, because as you, as you said, it's led to some of the best films ever made, but it also, as you go through his, his career, it has worked to his detriment as well.
0: Wells is a guy who is the epitome of both the good and the bad side of the outer theory. Uh, for, for those who don't know, the outer theory says that the director is the primary creative force behind a film, that it's an example of his personal vision, and that he coordinates to all the elements of the film to make that vision. The idea of an auteur has been in, uh, something uh, continually in conflict with studios who want films to deliver certain things in certain ways. Product. Yes, yeah. product. Right, uh, right. There's certain consistencies and expectations and so on. And Wells wants to explore his themes his way think about what he meant to do by starring as both the hero and as the kurtz character in heart of darkness he's looking at the beginning point of this journey and at the ending point you know and it's pretty interesting i think to keep that in mind when you think of the subject of his first film that he made, the legendary Citizen Kane in 1941.
1: A certain man, and for the poor you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who is this one whose favorite son just by his action has the traction magnets on the run? Who likes to smoke, enjoys a joke, and wouldn't get a bit upset if he were really broke with wealth and fame? He's still the same. I bet you five you're not alive if you don't know his name.
0: This is a story about a wealthy man who is shown in the beginning of the movie dying in a desolated mansion. And though he was a gigantic figure in world history, he was a titan of the newspaper industry. There's still a great mystery to what he was really like. And this gets a reporter to go and meet the people involved in his life in order to try and sketch out a portrait of what really drove Charles Foster Kane. And what is a
1: figure of Charles Foster Kane really about? Well, here's my take on Citizen Kane. I think it's underrated. Hmm. I think being the official greatest film ever made actually doesn't give it enough credit because What's happened with this honor is a lot of people have been viewing Citizen Kane as a museum piece, as something for film school, as something to work through. And there's a lot of amazing film stuff we'll talk about here. But what doesn't get talked about enough is what an absolute joy and an absolute entertainment this film is. From start to finish, you could watch this over and over and see before your eyes the same uh, excitement that Wells had at his train set that he got to play with, and now we get to enjoy. it. I don't know how you call it, magic or miracle or what have you, but
0: this is the case where... He is doing so much that he, as a first-time filmmaker, had absolutely no idea if the tricks that he would do, the camera moves, the placement, the lighting, was going to work. And
1: almost all of them worked triumphantly. Right. And the first thing he did was surrounded himself by amazing with amazing prose so he's brought the mercury theater cast in with him uh as the supporting players and he's got herman mankiewicz co-writing the script with him there's been all kinds of controversy as to who could claim the most credit but i don't think we're in a position to settle that here but we can definitely give credit to greg tolan who. Wells had the vision to, uh, to hire as a cinematographer for creating a look of a film in a way that has never been seen before. And has never been seen before in multiple ways. During the course
0: of the film, you get these moments that could almost be done from a great horror film. Mm-hmm. You have these moments that could be almost be, come from a great noir you have moments of political satire. You have moments of uh, relationship comedy and relationship drama.
1: Look at the very uh, opening scene when uh, you see a slow pan up from a fence at a, in an abandoned mansion that was Xanadu and, and, and a light in the window. And, and just the way this is shot – From its first seconds applies what you said, because it is as ominous as anything in Dracula, Frankenstein. It is as mysterious as anything from any kind of thriller at the time. Then you go from that into this frantic newsreel that basically summarizes the entire film we're about to see in newsreel form and opens up this amazing structure of the film because we're going to be following this News on the March reporter as he tries to find out the secret behind Kane's last words, Rosebud, and he interviews various people in his life. This structure is not only original and exciting to watch in and of itself, but it makes the film seem fresh every single time because even after you've seen it, you don't really know what's coming next because we're in the series of flashbacks within flashbacks. And that kind of structure would, again, work in a more modern, popular film, Pulp Fiction. When you look at the
0: contrast between the very opening section and with the newsreel footage, both of which are giving a viewpoint of the same person, but in such different ways that, in fact, the movie from the very beginning almost gives you these endpoints of how are we to look at this person's life? And then when you finally get a chance to see the young Kane, both as a child and then as a young, bright, energetic character played by Orson Welles, you're left wondering. It gets them really compelling to wonder how... Did a guy like that, how does a child like that get to be either of those two things that we saw in the beginning?
1: Right, and that really leads into what does Wells want us to think of Charles Foster Kane? Because here's a character that does some truly awful things during the course of the film, and yet there's still this roguish charm about him. There's still something about him that we like and 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 much of that i think has to do with wells's own innate charisma but it also is the film's strategy to keep us kind of off balance about what we can make of this guy where we're from scene to scene depending on who's telling the story depending on the point of his life we may be more or less sympathetic to him yes
0: and each of the people that the reporter meets in their own way, they wanted something out of Cain. They wanted a way of him to behave, or they wanted or he inspired them. The Guardian wanted some discipline on, on him, and mm-hmm. his presentation is, can't be just more stark and authoritarian. The, the Newspaper Man is inspired by his principles, and so his stuff is a lot more energetic and, and, and vibrant as a, as a result. And Then you have the friendship between Kane and Leland. Leland is, has such an awareness of both the virtues
1: and flaws of, that he finds in Cain. Right, because Everett Sloan's character Bernstein is much less questioning. He, he's uh, somebody who has pure admiration for Cain, but Leland sees a bit deeper, sees some of the dark side.
0: This reminds me of a film called Rashomon that came out in the 50s, which was about Four different people-relating situation in four different ways. And the director, Akira Kurosawa, made a really great choice of depicting each one of these four people's recollections in a different style of filmmaking. But that happened decades earlier off in (laughs) Citizen Kane. Using that newsreel is great because it shows this way of very familiar way of looking over the life of a great person and seeing what this person's like in just a way that people are very familiar with, just the details, the grand moments of history that he was involved in, and the general boilerplate depictions of a titan of industry and so forth. But then, when the reporter takes a further look into the person who was his guardian... And then his business partner, then his uh, closest confidant, and his ex-wife. Each one is depicted in a unique manner. The Guardian, for example, is as stark as you could get from any kind of expressionistic film where he, it's just a vast open chamber with a shaft of diagonal light mm-hmm. looking right down at a book. <laughs> the... Uh, business partner is is a lot closer together and has there's a lot more books and other papers around him and it's a lot more casual the talk with his closest friend is just uh, has this really wry melancholy aspect to it as he's as he's just relating to this past of his relationship with the Charles Foster Kane and uh, and with the and with the ex wife as you literally show it through a skylight. That's it's a shot that moves through a skylight down into a building in the middle of a rainstorm.
1: First, though, through a neon sign. Yes. <laughs> this, this, talk yeah. about audacious! Of uh, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing you we did not see in 1941 this is the kind of thing that was hinted at in the silent era with uh german expressionism and and people like uh fritz lang and fw murnau but film kind of had to restart with the sound era and citizen kane was the announcement that now film has arrived in sound at the apex uh it was heading towards in silence mm. there's
0: one particular shot that i would want to just underline that just kind of gives you a whole sense of where like wells is ability and talent it's a very small scene but there's a scene about halfway through where where kane is signing off financial dealings to a trust company and so mm-hmm. his fortune is being sort of taken away from him and as his like lawyers are discussing over the matter in the foreground kane himself slowly ambles back into the background if you actually look at the really closely the windows appear to be 20 feet high that's because they were 20 feet high right. <laughs> Uh, But obviously, they're not working as windows. He is literally diminishing himself into being smaller because of his reduced stature as a person. And and now think about that. Think about the person who decides to build windows that are way higher than they have any right to be and saying, no, if you look at them in the camera, it's going to work. It's not going to look like a terrible, (laughs) horrible forced perspective, but people are going to believe it. And it works.
1: And in another scene uh, later on in the film, in Xanadu, when you see these uh, fireplaces, this fireplace from a distance, and as you approach the fireplace, it becomes clear that it is not a normal sized fireplace; that it is a fireplace uh, that that could be uh, that is probably ten feet tall, and uh, so. But the thing is, these visual innovations don't work in isolation. They each one uh, furthers the story and gets us deeper into these characters. So when you have, for instance, cameras placed incredibly low, holes cut in the floor so the cameras can be placed so low, right? <laughs> it, it, it creates the these angles that are not just there for effect, but are there to show the massive ego of Kane's character and are adjusted to show various points at which he's either on a high or on a low until you you get another shot where he's walking past a series of mirrors that reflect him endlessly, one after another.
0: Right, right. Near the
1: that's near the conclusion after a mm. one hell of a room trashing. Right, and and the thing about uh, about this is that we don't just get a few of these. It's an embarrassment of riches. Every single shot, every single edit is like this. So you have a scene with Kane and his wife at a dinner table in the beginning of their marriage. Uh, they're sitting close together and talking to each other and engaging as time goes on instead of showing the marriage falling apart through words it's shown visually as you see the table get longer with each cut and the two actors being more distant from each other until finally Kane just snaps at his wife and they're at this really long table
0: See how magical that is? You're literally showing the entire disintegration of a relationship through furniture. Right <laughs> and he does uh, such a similar magic with the parts where kane's character tries to become a political figure with his face on this just enormous fifty foot high tapestry, and the audience is like just these shadowy like parallel lines off in the off in the borders you know it gives off just such a great sense of this being a megaphone for Cain to express himself. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that the movie explores in a similar way of how Rashomon looks at a situation. This is a movie which is, I think, one of the first that I've seen which attempted to go and make the point of the central enigma of what drives people to even do great things and magnificent things. You kind of think that they, they're done as a result of principles and lofty goals. But in fact, part of the thing that the movie does is take the Mickey out of that exact mm-hmm. concept, right? right? By having him draw up these principles and the way that they are used and misused in the film kind of puts a mockery to that. What's
1: wonderful about that is not that he's being disingenuous when he draws them up. He truly believes in the principles at the time, but as he becomes more and more successful, as he dominates the newspaper business, he realizes that they seem no longer to apply to him, that these are rules for other people, not for Charles Foster Kane. So, there's an amazing scene where he's in conflict with Joseph Cotton's character, who is the one who has to point out to him that he is being a hypocrite, that he is not living under these principles that he set forth. He's become the drama critic of the paper, and and Kane's uh, second wife, uh, who he Kane wanted to establish as this great opera star, is. In fact, not a great singer at all, but because Kane owns the paper, he would expect nothing but rave reviews from her disastrous performance. Jebediah writes a poor review, realizes that this will, in essence, destroy their friendship, gets drunk, and Kane comes in and finishes the review as a poor review. And even... The way the typewriter is used as a prop is just <laughs> right. a moment of genius when, when 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 he he presses that button to have the typewriter make that uh, I don't even know what the typewriter the noise is called again. The carriage return noise. As it, okay, it right. swings back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, exactly. As an explanation point to basically again through showing not telling portray the end of this friendship.
0: Right. It. <laughs> It
1: just ends with a mechanical noise, so mm-hmm. it's like with
0: uh, some with the most authority of a mechanical noise since maybe the dum dum noise from Law and Order.
1: There you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that motion, the carriage return that dissolves Leland and Kane's relationship, is born of a perspective on Kane that's brought in just right after when you look at Kane's ex wife. And Kane's attempt to make her into an opera star, despite even her wishes, or her even belief in her own abilities to do that. At that point, you get to a little more of the core of Kane in that he wants to go and impose his own reality on things. He's so open in the beginning of the sense of possibility and And the way about how all these restrictions that other people, maybe mere mortals for him, are concerned with and how he's willing to dismiss them. He has a really nice line where he says uh, to his guardian, oh, sure, I've lost a million dollars on this uh, newspaper. I'll probably lose a million more a year after and the year after that.
1: Right. this, This attitude is also reinforced during his political campaign when he's brought down by his opponents and and he yells y- something, you can't do this to me, I'm Charles Foster Kane. And that is the attitude that he brings forward in different points of his life and keeps saying in different ways. So when you get to Susan's relationship, his political career is over and he's replaced it by trying to be this Svengali mentor character. As that creates such uh, havoc on their relationship, he he doesn't treat her as a person. He treats her as a goal, as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And as that leads to the dissolution of this second marriage, he still doesn't understand that the world doesn't revolve around him, that other people have agency. And that's what makes that mirror scene at the end so wonderfully
0: poignant. Does Kane even view people as other people or mere reflections of things that he wants for himself? Like that desire to make his wife a opera star is brought to just such stark depictions through the same whirling that was used to show the dissolution of his first marriage. To show the end of his first marriage with the table is done vertically mm-hmm. as it swirls to show um, Susan in ever more elaborate attempts to have a performance and then when she finally has her disastrous performance, it slowly pans up to show the all the negative review from the people working in the rafters and Kane follows it up by literally w- trying to will the audience to applause mm-hmm. by doing the angriest
1: slow clap depicted in motion <laughs> picture history. And in memes for the last uh, however many years. But that, yeah, that scene where the camera pans up through the rafters is a great example of how the technical innovation of Kane meets the narrative power of this film because... That's another kind of shot that we would not have seen until then that was invented for this kind of film. Yet it's invisible to us because it makes so much story sense.
0: Exactly right. The intent just follows through by what we are looking at and what we're trying to wonder and what Kane is doing, what we think he might do next. One thing that really can't be said actually enough about this film and hasn't been said enough is that the Kane is a special effects powerhouse. There was so many things that were invented in terms of depicting things on film that came from this movie. It's now put to use to go and express Susan's plight, which is what on earth brought Kane to think to do that? to susan at susan maybe (laughs) what
1: what is the motivation for him to try to make her a big star well it might be the same thing that motivates him throughout this film which is this almost pathological need to be loved without any concern about loving other people in return and and this is brought out through some dialogue, but but it's very well developed throughout It's an endless need that can really never be fulfilled for all the talk about Rosebud being the meaning of his life. It might be this void that Wells is presenting Cain as that's even more resonant in my reading
0: hmm but like you said he could never fill it
1: exactly exactly it's it's the tragedy of the character and it's what causes him to treat others so callously to constantly be elevating himself to so easily switch from one type of endeavor to the next with the only thing they all have in common this desire to be loved you look
0: also at the ways that like he self-destructs, obviously the destruction of Susan's room right after she points out that she's leaving him, Mm -hmm. but also in how he decides to continue on with his campaign, uh, despite the giving the opportunity to resign. He just won't be
1: denied to do the thing he wants to do. Right. And in those days, evidence of an affair would have been the very end. There'd be no question what would happen next. But Kane does not give an inch. Yeah. And the film is so
0: good at showing this just on the use of space. Mm -hmm. Not just the furniture, but the cavernous environments. And in the final moments of just the vast array of wreckage junk garbage what kind of a cynicism comes from saying look at all this amassed work
1: and what did it really amount to well this is another reading of the film which is that it could be looked at as uh, anti-materialistic you know we see this man collecting constantly but not really enjoying anything he collects he just wants to amass more and more things until you do have that yeah. amazing final shot of this endless array of boxes that Spielberg would appropriate for his final <laughs> shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right,
0: right. It leads me to think about one of my favorite lines from The Big Lebowski. And to look at Citizen Kane in the prospect of how the dude talks about Jackie Trehorn mm-hmm. saying... Man, he treats these people like they're objects and (laughs) objects like they're people. The movie starts with a place, but also starts with an object. It's a snow globe of something that looks to be his home when he was a child. But unlike those boxes, which are random and rectangular and just piles of rubble, the snow globe is like a perfect circle.
1: Right, and a perfect reminder of a time when he could have been a different person of his childhood and if there's anybody out there who does not know what Rosebud is, fast forward at this point, but I think most of you know that Rosebud is in fact Kane's childhood sled, which I guess is meant to bring back memories of a more innocent time, but I think it's also perhaps less important to the film to the film's themes than it's often given credit for. Hmm. It's a good structural tying up point, this rosebud mystery. But there's also a really good argument to be made that it doesn't really explain Cain that kind of idea of a lost childhood could apply to anybody but what we've seen of Cain in the various stories told by the people in his life are what we're going to get to know about this enigma more than just this idea of the sled but despite that it's such a powerful story structure tool That it helps, you mentioned The Big Lebowski, it helps tie the film together. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely put.
0: I am at a loss right now if to really see a movie that was made up until that point, and very few since, that when you really think about Rosebud, if you really seriously think about it, apart from the sort of historical things behind the name, which mm-hmm. we'll get to in a little bit. But think about that in this movie is about a guy and you see this very robust person, someone who's like moved the mountains politically and socially, someone who's like had this gigantic rise and this gigantic fall. And at the end to point out what's left is a phrase People don't understand Mm -hmm. about
1: an object that no one at that point alive would recognize is what it is. And a phrase that is not actually heard by anyone, because when he says Rosebud, we see it as an audience, but we also see that he is alone in the room. So it is certainly a purposeful decision and not an error, but it's a very interesting one to state that not only can you not sum a man's life up with one word, but nobody even heard him say the word.
0: Yeah, that's a little bit of a mystery too far for me. I kind of want to say that at the end, when the caretaker at the end said, well, when he said Rosebud was his last word, that he was just sitting in the corner and we didn't get the chance to <laughs> see it. And it's just it's just on a way of the movie letting us feel what you describe that in the end, he says this word... That had some meaning, but no one was here to hear it except us in the audience. But I want to bring up that there's just a final twist in the knife. When by calling, why is it rosebud? Why do you say the name of a sled rosebud? Why would you give the name of a flower to something that's used when there is no flowers growing? That is an extra level. Hmm of even the name of that object doesn't fit. And this is such an interesting perspective because it's an ambiguity layer cake. It's something that shows all the scope of a human's life, of a person's life, all the different perspectives you can give to it while making it a mystery within a mystery within a mystery that's not known to anybody including
1: the person themselves. Exactly. And it's probably a little silly for there to be an official greatest film ever made. But if there is one, wouldn't one that encapsulates all that be an appropriate choice? This is one case where calling
0: like a film a masterpiece or calling an artist a genius, it just can somewhat work against it. Because as you said earlier, you treat it like it's a museum piece. And you think that this is a film to just be revered or analyzed. But this is a film that can be deeply felt. You can have a sense of wonder and enthusiasm and comedy and feel and take the ride and take the experience of this film. Just as much as you can for giving a film a rigorous analysis about what things
1: might mean. Right, because some of the most memorable scenes are just very much from the heart, Uh, a a lot of them uh, surrounding the Bernstein character. He has this wonderful speech where he talks about just seeing a woman and never seeing her again, but never forgetting that moment in his life. Or another line that strikes me as just very appropriate, he says, you know, it's easy to make a lot of money if all you care about is making a lot of money. <laughs> and and the movie is filled with moments like that. Moments that are funny, moments, moments that are wise, moments that are, are meaningful, and every one of those moments is attached to something beautiful happening on screen. Yes, and the scope
0: of what was happening on screen had such a resonance in a way. It's kind of the ultimate takedown of people, rich, famous, powerful to say, maybe they're just, just as clueless as anybody else. Maybe the thing that drives them is something that's kind of unknown to itself and it turns out that in his first film is not only triumphant on the scope of it but also gave the hints the rosebud seed <laughs> to
1: wells's own folly right because unfortunately the takedown was not merely aimed at people like kane in general but a very specific person that seemed to be a little too like kane which is the gigantic publisher at the time William Randolph Hearst who controlled the newspapers and the media Kane and Mankowitz certainly would have had uh him in mind in a number of aspects of the character although it's it's really an oversimplification to say it's just Hearst it's not it could just as well be uh Wells as Hearst, but there were enough similarities, particularly in the treatment of the Susan Alexander character, who is clearly meant to evoke Hearst's mistress, the actress uh, Marion Davies. And in, again, urban legend world, there uh, is a rumor out there that Hearst had a nickname for his uh, mistress's most private of private parts, which was Rosebud.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, that is an interesting case of particular self-destruction on Wells's point. Because if that is even close to true, you literally went and attacked a guy's mistress yes. with the most, <laughs> one of the most personal insults imaginable. A Someone who has been able to make and break in, whole careers instantaneously. And in fact, they even tried... And nearly succeeded in keeping Kane from being Aaron.
1: Right. Hearst basically went to uh, all the studio heads and told them that he wanted every copy, every print of this film destroyed. And he almost succeeded. So many of them were. Fortunately, there were some enterprising folks who were able to uh, bring Kane beyond his reach. And it did get released. But it got released amid this controversy, amid the attacks from Hearst. It was not the kind of gigantic money maker that was expected from the boy genius Orson Wells, and some theaters wouldn't, wouldn't play it. So the complete control that Wells was given on his first film would never be allotted to him again
0: wells just took things just a little too far and in a way that i almost think is a little deliberate kane is not some irredeemable bastard it doesn't appear that wells had an axe to grind against hearst or newspaper men in general it's a deliberate provocation for not for no particular good reason you know kane not only showed off just the audacity of Wells' creativity, the audacity of his scope, but also in the audacity of his provocation. This may be the most costliest veiled insult in filmmaking history, and one that led to dire repercussions for Orson Welles's next film, The Magnificent Ambersons, in 1942.
1: We are the Village Green Preservation Society God save the old duck, born and variety We are the desperate dam, appreciation society God save strawberry jam and all the different varieties Serving the old ways from being abused Protecting the new ways, for me and for you Yes, now, so the Magnificent Ambersons opens on a very nostalgic note, looking at small-town life at the uh, start of the 20th century. Uh, we follow uh, Eugene Morgan, played by Joseph Cotton, who is courting Isabel Amberson, daughter of the town's wealthiest family. But she goes on to marry her other suitor, Wilbur Minifer, and has a son named George, who might charitably be categorized as spoiled. Mm, Eugene, meanwhile, has become one of the uh, early developers of the automobile. And his fortunes, as well as that of the Ambersons, are explored in the context of the changing times of the society itself.
0: This is a great sophomore attempt, I think, by Wells. While Wells' first film is about the scope of a single person's life over a great distance, over his entire life, here he's expanding it to a whole family. Each of the family members have different motivations Mm -hmm. and different attitudes towards their place in society and the magnificence that
1: they feel should be their position especially so in georgie's case right right yeah he is played as an adult by uh tim holt and he he's quite the character. He is kind of a little bit like Charles Foster Kane without the charm or the talent. He basically <laughs> believes that as the uh, child of wealth, everything should be handed to him and all should go his way and pretty much throws temper tantrums when not. So when he begins to court the Joseph Cotton character's daughter, who was raised in an entirely different set of values, it really sets up a fascinating dynamic of this old-style view of wealth as something that's entitling and meaningful in and of itself to the idea of creating something innovative in this case, the automobile, which is meant to represent everything modern, everything that's going to change the times that were looked back on so fondly. And so it's it's this wonderful culture clash as depicted in relationships between characters. And while
0: Kane is a look at this level of regret and searching back and longing perhaps for the lost moments of a single person's life. However, self-involved that might be Ambersons expands that scope to have the idea of a lost society, a lost culture, a whole lost era of a whole, where a whole group of people or a community or the world would exist. It, it has that same sense of, Loss and poignancy that, like, I think uh, Renoir did in his magnificent war film, uh, Grand Illusion.
1: Good connection. And it's being done visually here as well, because we open with this montage of the way things used to be. It's got the wistfulness of a kink song in its sense of nostalgia. And then it's also physically embodied in the Amberson house itself, which the camera lovingly explores in its shadows and its detail and you know you have the old old man major amberson patriarch of the family and then you have agnes morehead playing uh, aunt fanny who is kind of the uh, old maid sister who can't quite get it together but again all these all these interesting characters are portrayed in in the context of this uh physical environment
0: very much so. This uses like the house in that the Ambersons reside in almost has that same Tardis level scope of showing a society in transition as the recent Darren Aronofsky film Mother hmm. does, and uses it to vaster creative effect. You have betrayals. You have unusual alliances. You have great family gatherings and moments of intense loneliness. Even a in moment by a boiler, actually. <laughs> and they're all done through all these different angles of sometimes showing the house in, cl- in a claustrophobic way, sometimes showing it as like this vast expanse. And in fact, there's like several great sequences where uh, members of the family are arguing with each other and their stature and their position in the argument are represented as they walk up this vast circular stairwell. Mm -hmm. There's just a particularly just astounding moment where Georgie is in a moment where he has this holier-than-thou attitude where he's framed perfectly behind a stained glass window and and it's held there. (laughs) To show his sense of his own, you know, icon- iconography right <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the realm of the Ambersons lore, you know? And I am so, so happy that you brought up the kinks because <laughs> I was really thinking about that when looking at this movie, especially in the context of Kane, because... The Kinks are a band who, while they've had great songs, do not have that level of a cultural adoration that their compatriots, the Beatles have. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, part of it is that the Kinks had different level of concern for, um, for the subjects of the music that they made. And part of that is a concern for the past – and how that reckons with people living today. Kane is the Beatles. Amberson is the Kinks.
1: Fascinating. I I like that a lot. And and for those of you who uh, might only know the Kinks uh, from a few of their hits, check out the album, The Village Green Preservation Society, and listen to the lyrics, and see if there aren't some wellsian moments there
0: right i mean and look at like and maybe that's part of the reason that amberson's just is not held in such gigantic regard because it is doing this in the societal level in a family level its creativity is almost on par with the things that kane is doing but what kane does is it has the Mm shockingness of newness of audacity maybe a near punk rock level of saying sense that there's no boundaries you know i you can get the feeling of like perhaps when the beatles showed up on the ed sullivan show and the shock of it i think is kind of can be similar but by mere virtue of trying to do a more nuanced story and a story that's diffused across all these different eras it just doesn't have the jolt the sustained jolt that Kane is able to preserve right. throughout
1: the years. And as based on a book, as opposed to being an original screenplay. And of, of course the elephant in the room when it comes to Ambersons is that it is not the movie that Orson Welles intended it to be. As we brought up uh, near the end of Kane, he had lost final cut at this point. So after the completion of filming, RKO stepped in and cut out a good hour of footage. Because it was that, originally
0: going to be nearly over two and a half hours, exactly.
1: it was. It, yeah, there was so much more that was supposed to be in there. An hour of content was cut out, and the ending was reshot completely, actually by the— uh, editor, Robert Wise, who would end up becoming a wonderful director in his own right, but here was utilized by the studio while uh, Orson Welles was doing other things that we'll discuss later, shot a studio-approved ending that Wells was adamantly against, and the original footage was destroyed. So one of the, it's one of the great uh, missing links of cinema is the original ending of the Magnificent Amberson. so we'll uh we should probably compare what we have and what we could have had.:
0: yes, that that's right. And it's cool, I think, to look at like the, just the different senses of places about how Wells looks at places. Xanadu almost becomes a malevolent character mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end of Citizen Kane. But the house that the Ambersons live is a character in its own right, but it's a lot more robust. There's a lot more things going on. There's a lot more crevices and and um, nooks and turns in the story of the house mm-hmm. and the people that are in it than is in Xanadu, which is just an exercise in increasing isolation amidst the rubble of what you tried to create in your life. Right. You know? And before we get to that ending there is a a great moment where georgie is praying because he is at his like last realm of financial resources and he's over in the bed where his mother has passed away at least it looks that way wells as the narrator the unseen narrator he does an expansion on the Ideas that were done in Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. The sentiment in Lyndon is that good or bad, rich or poor, they're all equal now. <laughs> Lost in the past. But in that moment, in Ambersons, throughout the course of the movie, the Georgie character has just been this just obnoxiously entitled brat. And everyone in town... Is focused on one particular aspect of that family. They may like or dislike other members, but they want Georgie to have his comeuppance. They want him's comeuppance. And the narrator says at that moment that he has had his comeuppance, but everyone who had wanted it was either gone or they'd even forgotten, which is kind of, isn't that the ultimate mm-hmm. kind of? Re- a weird sort of revenge in a way, right? And then it fades out. And that's the last moment in that house. So I guess it's the last moment of the Ambersons' magnificence. Uh, of,
1: and of Wells's film. Because right. the mom- what will proceed will be something that is not Wells. Right. Now, George has been on record as being very much opposed to the automobile and... And what brings a little irony to the table, George gets into a car accident. We are then brought into a uh, very anonymous-looking hallway in which Joseph Cotton and uh, Agnes Moorhead have been visiting uh, George in the hospital, who is uh, recovering. And uh, they basically, with dialogue, provide us a happy ending where George is going to be great he's going to marry joseph cotton's daughter and everyone is going to live happily ever after and that's that's the movie we have the movie we could have had ended quite differently it did have the accident but the focus is that is shifted to uh, agnes Moorhead's aunt fanny who uh suffers a nervous breakdown and there's a very uh, dark scene. This is all stuff that has been described, none of which uh, still exists, but we see her in a rocking chair, basically in an almost catatonic state as as a comedy record of the time plays. Then we have a series of long tracking shots of George uh, wandering in the old Amberson household, which is now shown as decrepit and falling apart, and a, uh, an empty shell of what it once was. You know, we can only imagine what these scenes will look like, but considering how amazing so much of this film is, it's a question out there is how much better could the film have been if it had been allowed to end with Wells's vision. <coughs>
0: See the ending doesn't really bother me that much, because while I can't say that Robert Wise "quote unquote" screwed up, his filmmaking is so incongruous to what Wells has done up to the up to this point in the movie that it becomes kind of dismissible in my head, mm-hmm. and all the great qualities of the film up to that point um, override the idea that oh, at the ending is. Something you know, it it comes across to me like almost it could have been a big black scene missing title card, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so I'm not. It doesn't di- diminish or ruin the film to me in in my feelings about it. However, when I think of like all the expanded scope and the extended ambition that you was implied in the beginning of Amberson's. What I really regret is that hour or hour plus of footage that was cut. I just think about like how Wells expanding his palette, but at a same level of creativity and inspiration that did Kane, but with an increased perspective, my God, what could that have been like if he had an extra hour and an extra level of control to work with?
1: Yeah, what we have is very special, but you know what could we have had? And uh, that brings up the question: Is where was Wells through all this when uh, when his uh, movie was taken away from him? Yeah. Short answer is he was fired by RKO. Long answer is he was fired in the context of making yet another film that he was basically assigned to. After Amberson's shooting was completed, but before the editing was completed. And that is the now mostly lost film, a documentary called It's All True, which was uh, supposed to come out in 1942. There is currently a very good documentary about the making of this film of the same title that was released in 1993. Basically, just after Kane, Wells was appointed to become a goodwill ambassador to Latin America and was asked to go down to Brazil and make kind of an innocent travelogue film to uh, help with the war effort and strengthen the bonds between the U.S. and and Brazil and and Latin America. And as is Wells' way, he took this assignment and took it to an entirely... uh, New level. It's all true was originally going to have three different components. It was going to be a compilation of three short films. The first one called My Friend Bonito, which uh, is the story of a, a young Mexican boy and his friendship with a bull. Mm. <laughs> then there's Carnival shot at the Brazilian festival, the Carnival, and Wells apparently became very enamored with the samba dance. So he started filming a lot of samba and wanted to I- explore that. And finally, the there was a uh, going to be a piece called Four Men on a Raft, which uh, was a recreation of a real-life incident where a number of fishermen ended up sailing 61 days to the Brazilian capital to protest labor conditions they had to uh, suffer under and to meet directly with the Brazilian president and actually succeeded in convincing him to make reforms, which turned them into folk heroes. Four Men on a Raft was actually discovered almost intact. So the the documentary It's All True has little snippets of My Friend Benito and Carnival, but actually has a presentation of four men on a raft, which I have to say is very impressive. It couldn't be more different than the stuff Wells had been doing. It looks almost more Herzog than Wells Uh in that basically it's, it's, it's done silent with a score. You're seeing a lot of great sailing and nature shots, the visual beauty of everything that you know that 's associated with a daring sail through the ocean
0: while that 's really great that some of the footage got preserved, ultimately, when I look at the Amberson situation, mm-hmm. I cannot help but blame wells a bit, obviously, like he didn 't it was not his choice to get the movie yanked away from him, but at the same end. While you can be definitely enamored by taking all this great footage and you're saying, this, this, I can make this Samba look magnificent and, be, and have this raft story be so inspiring, but you still haven't finished your other movie. Right. Okay? <laughs> Brazil will still be there.
1: <laughs>
0: Go and film your Samba movie after you make sure that the film is, is cut, it's in the can, and you are there in person. But the fact that you thought that you were going to be able to go long distance and, and edit the movie from another um, side of the equator is just such a real lapse of judgment, I think, for, Wells. I mean, you should have either not taken the gig, or if you couldn't, get the gig done mm-hmm. and then get right back to go and make sure that your film, which, is, which had a more ambitious scope... And knowing the kind of dire danger that your previous film had been involved in, you should have like been more careful.
1: Right. And RKO had it out for Wells. So with Wells out of the country and the Citizen Kane experience already putting him in disfavor with the studio, they took this opportunity to ensure that the art film that uh, Wells wanted Amberson's to be would become the more commercial property through the removal of Wells. Yeah, um, uh, but I mean, this is something that Wells was totally aware of, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it there, there, was. There's, there's such no a... good decision making on anyone's part here. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. in retrospect, and I know it was a power play, but they destroyed the footage. You know, so many lost films have have been found and restored. Uh, We're still finding uh, bits of Metropolis to this day. But unless there's a real surprise in store for us, um, this footage is gone, as is most of it's all true. So we we don't really even have that in any kind of complete format. So it was absolutely a situation now uh, where... How is Wells going to operate in the context of Hollywood? And he did decide he wanted to with his next film. Yeah, the
0: next film is an interesting example of Orson Welles trying to behave a (laughs) film called The Stranger from
1: 1946. though we share so many secrets there are some we never tell why were you so surprised that you never saw the stranger did you ever let your lover see the stranger in your cell? Uh,
0: it's a story that starts off with a mysterious skittish person let out of prison but uh, he's not the stranger <laughs> He finds himself, though, pursued by an even more mysterious figure who is smoking a pipe. Now, that guy's not the stranger either. (laughs) It turns out that he is, in reality, a Nazi hunter, and he is hunting for the real stranger who is posing as a prominent teacher in a small
1: northeastern town. Right, uh, and there's not much uh, mystery as to the identity of the fugitive Nazi. It's pretty much established right off the bat that it is Orson Welles' character who has ingratiated himself into the town, gotten married, and become a, uh, a, a prominent person in this uh, small-town community. The Nazi hunter is very well played by uh, Edward G. Robinson in one of his rare uh, hero roles.
0: It's really nice that you say that because his role is a very kind of rare heroic role in that he does behavior that's pretty rare for what we expect to be a hero. This is uh, the most practical Nazi hunter we've ever seen because it's a guy who is incredibly frank about what he needs to do to capture this guy. Like, there's a moment where he tells the family that there's no good way to say it. Your sister married a Nazi. (laughs) And there's a moment later where... He just completely, matter-of-factly mentions, well, the best way to capture this guy is to use his wife as bait, and which is a really good chance he'll get killed. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes to say, now what I have said may appear pretty blunt, to which everyone would be in complete agreement. Yeah, that's pretty blunt. (laughs) But if anyone can
1: sell that, it's
0: Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, (laughs) Robinson does lend some gravity to the situation, but it also, I think, speaks to how this is a post-war film and then the idea of rooting out Nazis was still so much on people's minds that this isn't treated as a ludicrous
1: point of, hell no, you're not going to, like, pimp out my daughter to get a Nazi. Well, there's (laughs) even some, and I believe this is the first time this uh, was seen in a... Hollywood film some footage of the concentration camps yeah. because you know at this point in 1946 it would have been such a fresh memory of World War II. Yes, that's right. It was very
0: much on people's minds, and they figured whatever needs to happen. But in that context, it is a mystery of where the where the mystery is not who. Is the secret Nazi, but it turns into this pretty strange dark comedy about what does it take to stand by
1: your man? Of course, the wife is in no way wanting to hear any of this. So a lot of the a lot of the film is uh, is each character slowly kind of getting ready to understand the situation, but to uh, differ with your use of the word comedy in relation to this film, because one of the things that I thought was a drawback is how mostly humorless I I found it, especially compared to a similar film that had come out just three years earlier, Alfred Hitchcock's brilliant Shadow of a Doubt, also about a a killer making himself at home in a small town, and ironically, considering our discussion in that case, played by uh, Joseph Cotton. Ah. But I kept thinking about Shadow of a Doubt I, as I was watching this. It, it might play better if, if you hadn't seen Shadow of a Doubt. But aside from one character actor played by uh, Bill House, who's this druggist who keeps uh, entrapping the town to play uh, checkers with yeah, him. Right. Uh, I was just saying to myself, considering a lot of the dark subject matter that's being dealt with, but the context of the small town would provide a lot of opportunities for humor that I just found were not there. So what you have... I think is a film that's still solid. It's still a good film, but it doesn't have that Wells touch of the first two films that takes it to the next level. It doesn't provide uh, the kind of rich personalities, characterizations that, We know he can. And that may be the result of him wanting to appease the studios. Mm.
0: Fair, I think that's really interesting because I do see a manifestation of Wells' audacity. But I think it was constrained on the plot and I think on the subject matter. Maybe my sense of calling it a comedy is a little bit not apropos because or I'm following that equation of like comedy equals tragedy plus time. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm thinking about it, any film that's literally showing footage from concentration camps is not a film. Who's at first put, has comedy or levity on its mind. And I think shadow of a doubt can be considered superior because it does include those things. But I think the basic structure of, The Stranger is meant to be a thriller. Just nothing but a thriller. And Wells, I think, was trying to behave and say, I'm just going to make a thriller. But he had some creativity to express. And where I think the creativity got expressed is to show the dissolution of this relationship in a grotesque way that borders on absurdity to the level of sheer hysteria Mm -hmm. (laughs) people have real problems like you said (laughs) with dealing with that there may be an a straight up nazi in their midst and their reactions get to be pretty maniacal in trying to deal with that and especially in the case of like loretta young's character and the way she expresses loyalty (laughs) to um orson welles's character this really manifests itself in the way how, like, Loretta Young's Mary character uh, deals with Wells's character in their relationship. Wells, I think, manifests this mania in his own persona, too, where his character just keeps getting sweatier and sweatier, and the closest become closer and closer, aiming more at the chin level. There is one straight-up funny moment, which maybe people took, the, took in a bad way where he is setting up a scheme and he's hiding in the, the nearby uh, drugstore seeing that someone will meet their demise. And he's just doodling on a nearby pad. Mm-hmm. And then he suddenly realizes he's inadvertently drawn the swastika, <laughs> So he just crosses it out and eventually just takes the whole
1: pad, <laughs> takes the whole piece of paper. <laughs> right, there, there, there's a lot of wells as an actor here is really playing broad uh you, you you at no point really get the sense that he's doing that good of a job of, of hiding his evilness Yeah, that's right yeah. yes
0: exactly he's he is so on edge at the ver- mm-hmm. at the very from the very start and um even when he meets up with his like former um uh, uh associate uh, there's a, a, a sense of, hey, let's just go in the woods together where you know automatically that nothing's really good <laughs> going to gonna come of his uh, uh, soon-to-be ex-friend. <laughs>
1: now, now, one thing I like about the characterization that is, though, his obsession with clocks, because that manifests itself not only in clues that he projects of his discomfort uh, mm-hmm. as the stranger, right. but also allows for a pretty exciting climax in the town clock tower.
0: Yes. He takes like the imagination that he uses with Amberson's house and puts it in an even, even smaller space. This is, this kind of reminds me of what Hitchcock did with the windmill scene in foreign correspondent, because in this enclosed space, there's such a labyrinth and like an Escher feeling of like of gears and, and weird angles and crazy stairwells. And among these are these moving statues with these pointing swords Mm -hmm. that are all (laughs) moving around in this just clockwork labyrinth nightmare, like attic, which is where he, where Wells finds himself in. And that's where I think he is – where Wells' creativity reaches like it's its full flower, I think, at the end. that That demise is so over-the-top ridiculous mm-hmm. and just the denouement. It's so stark in a way that the film up to that point has not been – has been straightforward. But when you finally get up to that clock tower, like it starts off with like Loretta Young in maybe the ultimate gesture of perverse loyalty – goes up the stairs of the clock tower into something that at that point she's already figures is going to be her demise. And it reaches this really weird shot where the camera shows her holding on to the arm of Wells. And you see a 40-foot descent. Now, you might be wondering why did the, how was the special effects behind <laughs> it, only to find out that, in fact, it wasn't a special effect at all. That's really a drop. She's not harnessed. And literally she is putting her entire trust in the arm strength of Orson Wells to
1: keep her from getting hurt from a giant fall. But it is a pretty <laughs> striking shot. when you oh, see well, it. All yeah. right. <laughs> so it all worked <laughs> out, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Wells is almost incapable of creating a boring shot when it comes to a spectacle like this this is the kind of filmmaking he lives for so even in a project that may not have been that personal to him that might not reach the heights of some of his other works you still have these amazing instincts that wells brings as a director coming through yeah
0: that at the very end It just gets very, very feverish, very, very claustrophobic, Um, more intensity out in the last five minutes and more craziness in the last as whereas the clock thing that's been his concern all throughout the Wells' character has been throughout proves to be his ultimate undoing. And what more spectacle can this town have than what happens with Wells? you know <laughs> what we've talked about earlier about wells' over the top nature. I mean in no sense i that's where I guess a lot of the comedic things happen for me. It's just just seeing him act ever more antsy and just normal situations and just trying to deal with people, and very clearly. Obviously, broadcasting his guilt like a shining beacon at every moment just seems quite amusing to me
1: about how absurdly unconvincing this guy is as not a sinister figure. (laughs) (laughs) And as we'll discuss a little later, Wells will eventually perfect the villain portrayal. But first, he's going to do a little bit of a a 180 from the relatively uh, conservative for him style of the stranger into possibly the nuttiest movie he ever made possibly yeah the ending of um the stranger it's just a little
0: glimpse and then brings full flower in his next film the lady from shanghai in 1947 you know the nicest jails in australia the worst are in spain
1: what law did you break in spain
0: i killed a man
1: Just now you almost killed a girl.
0: Is there a law against that?
1: Try it. You won't like the jails in America.
0: So they put you in jail for murder in this country? I didn't think so. There was a man killed his wife in Frisco last week. She'd gone to the icebox for a bit of supper. He thought she was a burglar, he said. He shot her five times in the head. This film's about an Irish sailor, played by Wells, badly, (laughs) who finds himself enchanted by a woman and joining her and her husband on a yachting trip. Um, When they pick up her husband's incredibly sweaty law partner along the way, he proposes a scheme for the sailor to help him fake his own death. And then things just end up getting more and more crazy for the sailor after he agrees to the plan, and it goes
1: horribly, horribly wrong. See, I consider this Orson Welles' Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I love it (laughs) for the same reason... I love that Spielberg film, which is that really for the only time in their careers, they sent respectability out the window and just made an insane, maniacal film that went in the nuttiest places their imaginations could think to take them. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily clean. It doesn't lead to a masterpiece, but I think it does lead to a lot of fun. After this, we're going to see a lot of seriousness from Wells. So watching him have this much fun As a director, is really a a pleasure, and you know, you mentioned the Irish accent, and yes, it's a terrible Irish accent. I also think it's a hysterical Irish accent. (laughs) I laugh every time I hear it. Mm -hmm.
0: I have to admit, I was burned a little bit when I first saw the movie because it was touted to me as a noir story and the kind of twists and dark turns it was taking were of a more noirish vein. I was not expecting it to be zany, which is what this movie <laughs> is. It's totally zany, but the accent is key. It It really is. When you hear your hero talking in a voice that's supposed to technically be Irish, but in reality, you expect him to ask... People to keep stay away from his lucky charms. (laughs) (laughs) You should. That's a clue. That's a very big clue that what you are watching is not meant to be taken seriously.
1: Right. Even though it is working in the noir format, Rita Hayworth is there as the uh, the femme wife, fatale. the femme fatale, the wife of the powerful lawyer played uh, by Everett Sloan. From, and his uh, crutches. And his crutches, yes. He is uh, not since Richard III has a disability been used to portray such menace. And, and Everett Sloan deserves a lot of credit here after playing such a kindly character in Kane. He really does bring uh, the evil in this one. So, you, you do have the, the noir tropes they're just taken in weird directions which probably doesn't get weirder than the the fellow you describe as the sweaty guy who is played by Glenn Anders as George Grisby who, uh, Wow, Uh, this guy's voice, demeanor, and sleaziness just ooze out of him. The way he asks uh, uh, Wells' character, how about a little target practice?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Everything this guy says and everything he does, that was the thing that yanked me way out of the movie, completely. It was a... Fourth and fifth wall breaking (laughs) performance to have him just come in and just almost talk to wells's character in a way almost that he's sort of propositioning him for some like salacious activity of a, of well, a of he a is rest.
1: propositioning him to kill him <laughs> that's right
0: but it seems but it comes across like he's <laughs> propositioning him a way of a, of a more, way more salacious nature let's put it some rest area related stuff or something and is enhanced by the direction of wells of this guy who is he's always sweaty his lips are trembling his eyes are just beady and you just always have these eerie horrible glow about him and he almost seems to like at any moment to have have his tongue out and
1: panting (laughs) see the, the things that took you out of the film are just things i found very funny and turned it into into pretty much a noir uh comedy
0: noir films are not without like their share of like grotesque characters. Like I mean, look at how um, Gutman and Cairo from like the uh, Houston's The Maltese Falcon. But oh my God, Grisby is just this like <laughs> feverish, demonic, weird force of greaseball nature <laughs> <laughs> to me. And also that kind of ties me in on what also just ruined helped ruin the movie for me on that was that his presence is so so potent about how disgusting and sleazy and disreputable that he is that up that when wells's o'hara character actually agrees to anything this guy does as opposed to running for his life in the other direction that I, who up to that point was believing in the steps of the noir story, and while thinking like Wells's character is a bit of a chump, and obviously he is doing a lot of this out of adoration for the femme fatale, you know, but you don't agree to whatever this guy says. Well, well, he even <laughs> he even
1: says outright in his uh, Lucky Charms accent that he's not too bright when it comes to uh, women. That, well, <laughs> yeah. that
0: that's that's certainly true, but. When, when Grisby tells you to go and open a door, you just don't do it. At that point, just don't do it. Just stay the hell away from this guy. <laughs> yeah, but this is not that kind of a movie. This is a movie about, like you said, a guy not too bright, just getting in more and more crazy situations. Even before Grisby, I think appears, there's like uh, the one, the more, world's most feverish yacht trip, where mm-hmm. like they're in this like crazy voodoo jungle fire environment, you know? And and the way Everett Sloan plays Mr. Bannister is like this half man, half machine, half like evil walking stick, you know? Or praying mantis in the way he walks around with these cane. But then it takes a whole other turn when, by agreeing with Grisby and then having the plan go horribly wrong, which leads to, of course, the in- incredible sense of inevitability that it was going to go horribly wrong... You then get this whole trial sequence, which is like one of the most absurdly deranged trial moments in film history. Like like the jury is a bunch of gossips, the the judge is treated as a complete fool. Like the proceedings are like treated as this absolute absurd farce. Right up to the point where I where Wells' character goes, Oh, can I go and confer a moment with the judge? Which involves him choking the judge to unconsciousness <laughs> and then being able to just completely run off. <laughs> but then the movie shows its full hand near the end.
1: Right, because now th- then the climax takes place in uh, a carnival, which allows Wells to fully exploit the surreal environment mm. of the carnival, in particular, a hall of mirrors, yeah. which was such a... A powerful scene that it would be replicated uh, in the '70s by in Bruce Lee's uh, Enter the Dragon.
0: Yeah, and look at all the things to do to get to that point. It shows its hand literally by having first off he arrives by a slide, mm-hmm. a super wacky slide to arrive in this ha- in this carnival, and then says, "It turns out that it was me in the madhouse," <laughs> which is. Basically what he was going on in the movie all along. But here, that surrealist touch that you're describing just gets to like full flower because these walls are waving at them and his shadow is like four feet higher than he is and he's like, he can't find his own footing. And then he sees himself, Bannister, and Bannister's wife are all in this hall of mirrors. So you have the ultimate takeoff of the uh, Mexican standoff. You have the <laughs> eight-dimensional Mexican standoff as hundreds of Everett Sloans are pointing their guns at hundreds of um, O'Hara's are pointing at hundreds of guns at the Fem fatale. And then when the bullets start flying, you literally have one of the most... Pure cinematic moments, not in the sense of expression, but just in the sense that only in a film mm-hmm. could you have just these fragments of images of all these people just all flying in all directions. And when you your your view of one person just gets changed in a shower of shards to a view of another person. And just like, whoa, what the hell is this? It's like it's just this great moment of Film imagery just getting at you all at once. Right, it's
1: Orson Welles unleashed. Yes, and right, and and again, that that's why I love this film. There, there's uh, no controls, but there it would not be an Orson Welles film if there wasn't then a sad story about studio interference. Uh, uh, Not again. Well, (laughs) and sure enough, sure enough, yet another forty minutes was cut out of this film from the studio, so even though uh, there's nothing that seems obviously missing to me as far as mm-hmm. uh, plot goes, there could have been more, and it may have changed the uh, the structure and, and how we view the film, but we don't know. But why why was the studio, aside from length, ready to yank the rug out from Wells here? Well, Wells did another one of his uh, little self-destructive moves here. Mm-hmm. You see, he was married to Rita. To Hayworth. As production began, they were actually in the process of of getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would. Divorce soon after, but uh, they still wanted to work together and Rita Hayworth had just come off a big hit called Gilda, a wonderful, more traditional noir, and uh, she was known for her uh, long red hair and uh, you know it was the sex symbol of the time and so anyone expecting a Rita Hayworth film would expect. this uh, beautiful woman with her long red hair to uh, to grace the screen. So so what does Wells do? (coughs) Wells decides, all right, I am going to cut her hair and dye it blonde. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This Just by
0: way of context, I want to say that uh, for Gilda or in preparation of the roles that would lead for Rita Hayworth getting Gilda, she had a lot of work done on her, including, I believe, having her hairline raised through surgery. I think the studio had spent up to like nearly a million dollars in giving Rita Hayworth, the makeover to make that very specific long haired persona. And now they have Wells cut that. (laughs) Oh my God. That would have, that's a, that would have sent any studio head through the roof. And then also tie that into like that. She really doesn't do any seductive, things in the movie instead she plays as a power behind the throne kind of thing something that that Rita Hayworth is not at all equipped to do and Orson Welles was not dedicated to really doing that for her he was more dedicated to showing Crispy mm-hmm. sweating
1: and yelling off another scene. Right. But the studio was dedicated to more scenes of Rita Hayworth in a bathing suit. Exactly. Which we do get. Well, we do get, but
0: you got to figure they were making a lot more of that. In fact, mm-hmm. it was based off a novel, and they, seeing that how Wells could quote-unquote behave on The Stranger, was thinking, oh, he'll make a fine energetic version of a standard noir story. And imagine you get the film and you get this, (laughs) this bit of delirium that leads to this completely incomprehensible (laughs) carnival atmosphere. Oh my God. I, if, if you were working at that studio, I would understand completely why you would just go, Oh my, don't ever
1: don't give this guy pocket change for him, the bus ride to get him the hell out of here. But in fact, Pocket Change is exactly what he got for his next film. Which is the first of Wells's Shakespeare adaptations, Macbeth. Or, if you're superstitious, you may want to just call it the Scottish film. <laughs> it, it begins right. with Wells' uh, title character and uh, his fellow soldier Banquo, after having won a great victory in battle, receiving prophecies of uh, power and kingship by uh, three witches. Macbeth's ambition, not to mention those of his wife, will reach tragic heights in one of Shakespeare's darkest tales.
0: Wouldn't it be super ironic if one of those witches was played by Agnes Moorhead? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just full disclosure, when I'm not being a film geek, I I do have a little uh, part-time gig as a Shakespeare geek. So when we talk about the three Shakespeare movies, I'm going to come at it from a little different angle, starting here, because Macbeth is one of my favorite uh, Shakespeare plays, but also one of the most popular because it is just so immediate. It's one of his shortest plays. It's really hard to screw up Macbeth, Hmm. which which doesn't mean it hasn't been done if you uh, see the more recent uh, Fassbender film. Here, Wells is working with just about Zero budget. Most of the action takes place in caves, some of which look like the Bat Cave, <laughs> uh, made of right. uh, some kind of porcelain or whatever. Yeah, I and, was sort of
0: getting an impression of like that the Gordon and Shatner would be fighting it out on the other side of some of these sets. Right, right.
1: <laughs> so here is, you know, Wells is returning to the, uh, the play that was his first great success but now in what will be uh his last studio project for a while uh has to do it with with no money and you know what i think he does a pretty good job of it he brings what wells brings which is the expressionist photography the 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 look of macbeth is filled with the kind of shadows and angles and uh, evocative directorial touches that Wells has been bringing all along. Is it the definitive Macbeth? No, I, I don't think it's that. But <laughs> but the, the the thing is Macbeth. I, I think Macbeth is such a strong piece in any context that when you add the visual flourishes, you end up with with a highly entertaining film. Now we're gonna have a some pretty distinct
0: perspectives because we have two very different origin points. I am very much a Shakespeare neophyte. Macbeth turns out to be one of my favorite plays of Shakespeare, but I only know of about five of them. (laughs) And a lot of what I really like about Macbeth and I've grown to love about it is because of all the different film versions of Macbeth. And I think my favorite Macbeth is, ironically, the one that doesn't use any Shakespeare dialogue whatsoever, Throne of Blood by Akira
1: Kurosawa. That is my favorite as well. That is a masterpiece. I think this is a great film, but it's not a film at the level that, that Kurosawa is working with Throne of Blood. So, Well, well, we'll we're talking yeah. about
0: the difference between a production that could afford thousands of arrows in right. the climactic scene versus a film production that couldn't afford one of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the other difference being Kurosawa applied the story to Japanese culture and did not use uh, the original Shakespearean language, but his visuals at that stage in his career were so powerful that watching scenes like uh, Burnham Woods coming to life uh, with Kurosawa is almost the equivalent of the Shakespearean language. So no, we, we don't have that level in this situation coming from Wells. But we do have a director who has shown a clear love of Shakespeare, a love of the material. He does two kind of opposing things here. He, he makes it more specific by giving everyone a Scottish brogue to place the action much more clearly in Scotland. But Mm. then as a result of not having sets, and so much of the action being filmed in these dank caves, it actually adds to a bit of a timeless quality, because based on the visuals, there is no historic time and place that this is being set it's be, it looks like it's being set in some kind of netherworld. That's right. This movie
0: is the first film of Wells's filmography where I get at least this equal combination of awe and regret because when you see it, you're seeing the same kind of creativity... That he was able to do with Ambersons, what he was Mm -hmm. able to do with Citizen Kane, that he was able to let loose and fly off in all directions in Lady from Shanghai. But here he's doing it with just the most scant lack of resources, and yet he's spinning it into interesting situations and compelling drama. And so you are so aware that he is spinning gold from the barest mm. wheat imaginable. And on the one hand, I'm just amazed. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh my God, would you just give a brother like a check for $10,000 so he can make the movie look twice as good? <laughs> but what we end up having looks really damned impressive in its own right. And uh, so much of it gets brought upon like his just super creative look of focus, deep focus Mm -hmm. and perspective, that ability of having things happen in the foreground and in the background that he did to such great effect in his first two films, just come across to just inform what happens in the, for the characters in their situation in such a great intrinsically creative way to just give one example Lady Macbeth, spoiler alert, is the person who helps drive her husband to commit this act of treachery. And at a point where she is having her speech, it film it's filmed with Macbeth taking up most of the frame off one side of the image. But in the back, there is a long parapet, and it actually has Lady Macbeth walking on it. The effect is to provide her that she is the devil whispering at his shoulder (laughs) that's just one of many examples where where people are standing walking ascending and descending are tied in so beautifully to the events of the story
1: that's a very cool observation of a detail i did not notice and it really speaks to the whole cinematic quality of this particular macbeth which wasn't necessarily a given for Shakespeare at the time. The big uh, competition for this film in 1948 was Laurence Olivier's version of Hamlet, which went on to win uh, all the Oscars. And being Hamlet, there was some uh, great quality there, but it didn't have Wells' flourish as far as taking Shakespeare from the stage to film. So you're saying you would actually put this version of Macbeth over Laurence Olivier's Hamlet? I would, which you know, which is not to say that Laurence Olivier's Hamlet isn't definitely worth watching or that Olivier doesn't do a great job, but it is somewhat stage-bound. He does some things to change it from the original, including a lot of cutting down, But with Wells, you see every shot turning it from a play into something far more visual. And we should make some note on the performances. I have to admit I'm
0: coming in from a perspective of... My Macbeth knowledge is almost entirely of the cinematic realm, so I don't know what a figure of Macbeth is quote unquote supposed to be like. But we do know over like Wells, what a, how Wells's figures have been like a proud people who have found themselves laid down low to their own foibles,
1: in an effect, right? Mm-hmm.
0: That's not exactly Macbeth. Macbeth has a level of ambition that gets increased and goaded through. And I feel that, like, for once, it isn't a case where Wells is in a character that he has built for himself, right? He has a challenge in front of him to play a character who has thousands of years of performance history. I think that, like, at least from my impression, that he rises to the
1: challenge. Absolutely. He he makes some interesting decisions in that he plays a more vulnerable, perhaps even a more sympathetic Macbeth than a lot of actors choose to play him. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of actors will really hit home the soldier aspect of him as uh, the film begins with him winning a great battle. Wells kind of downplays that in favor of the guilt he feels, the inner conflict from being goaded on by Lady Macbeth, to commit these crimes, which he truly seems to think are as awful as we, the audience, think they are. A lot of Macbeths are played with far less remorse, but Wells is definitely interested in relatability here. Just a little more sympathy, which is not to say we're ever on his side, because, you know, as as the text goes, Macbeth does terrible, terrible things, but Wells' performance lets us in a little more. So you have a scene like the banquet scene when the ghost of Banquo returns and you see him truly losing what's left of any kind of hold he has on reality. He just plays that so well. And it's filmed so well where we don't even see the ghost uh, at first, but only later on into the scene.
0: Mm -hmm. He has to do quite a lot of, aspects to his persona stuff that's not tied in with wells kind of default it isn't like scottish Kane. let's put it that way <laughs> he's um uh, right i mean he has to be really show someone just actually losing his mind he has to be someone who's literally shocked by his own actions really close to the moment that they occur he has to have this complex nuanced relationship with, between the ambitions of his obliging the ambitions of his wife and the pride of having These um, witches tell him about his destiny and how he and how he reacts to that, you know, so that when he gets to the tomorrow, 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 you just uh, realize the just the
1: extent of this existential crisis that he's gone through, I guess, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. Yeah. And that that scene is done so well. It's uh, the film basically turns into a cloudscape. For those uh, who don't know, that's the scene that includes the famous line, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, which is some of the most uh, powerful language in Shakespeare. And again, maybe if he had more of a budget, he would have tried something a little more elaborate. But the idea of leaving the earth and heading into the clouds at the most existential moment of the film, I think is really effective. Yeah,
0: I agree. It it isolates him almost that he's almost like in a field of just total brightness. At that moment, he is over um, all alone. I mean, it's just him and his thoughts and his own reckoning with himself. And the performance by Lady Macbeth is... Really excellent as well uh, she has uh, she does a really nice job of doing both the ambition mm-hmm. and just the sheer kind of resentment at the fact that, as a woman in that position, she needs to go and have her um, uh, be guiding her husband to do these di- to do these dirty deeds, that's and that she a- has to have a proxy you know of power
1: yeah that's another performance that would often be played far more seductively and sexually, but she really focuses in on the ambition and the bloodthirstiness. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a really nice performance by Jeanette Nolan as playing like yeah. Lady, Lady Macbeth. Yeah, excellent work all around, including uh, young Roddy McDowell playing Malcolm, the rightful uh, heir to the kingdom. Well, definitely Throne of Blood is uh, Head Over Heels, I think, the best version of Macbeth uh, that I've ever seen. All right. Uh, This one, a bunch of them for me are kind of tied to second. I I think this one and Polanski's Macbeth from the 70s are both really solid. Okay. And there's another uh, more modern one that was made for TV starring Patrick Stewart from about a decade ago. Like I said earlier, I mean, this is such strong material that you could see a hundred versions of the play and it'll always seem fresh. Mm -hmm. And as happy as we were with the results... It didn't lose a lot of money, but it also did wasn't the big hit that Wells needed to keep the studio's interests. But they weren't after... expecting a
0: big hell, uh, hit, were they? Well, of... they,
1: they kind of were because this was the year of Shakespeare in that Laurence Olivier's Hamlet was a big hit. In fact, Olivier was considering making Macbeth and decided to not do so because he knew wells was working on a version around the same time oh that's interesting that's right. the
0: rare case in hollywood especially nowadays of someone who has an idea and someone doesn't immediately make another movie about that <laughs> idea and we i mean we've we've gone through dueling volcano movies right. dueling truman capone movies for some reason
1: right. but no dueling Macbeths. but uh, but as we've been talking about wells has been tweaking the studio's Ever since the beginning and becoming more and more alienated to them until finally this film was uh, from Republic Pictures and it ended up being just about his last studio film. I gotta yeah.
0: ask: Did he piss off anybody while making the movie aside
1: from make the movie not making a lot of money? Well, about twenty minutes was cut off, cut out. So they did think it was a little long. Okay, but I know of no epic drama of the Citizen Kane type uh, involved see. in this production. I see. Okay, yeah, but, but if- in
0: effect, though, this ended up being right
1: his. Swan
0: song for the studios. His
1: swan song in the old Hollywood system, and you know, un- unless Moses himself would intervene, the studios were now done with Orson Welles. <laughs> nice, nice. As
0: one of his, as one of the heroes from his earlier movies might say, uh, "Yeah, where's your alter now, Moses?" <laughs> yeah, that seems a perfect time to go and close one chapter of Orson Welles's life and films, we will go and continue in part two to look at the further work uh, that Wells did outside of the studio system, which starts off with another Shakespearean uh, film and ends with a great take on, uh, do- on the documentary form and a whole lot of other interesting films in between. So come on and join us over on part two of Orson Walls, which will be coming in soon.
1: Call me superstitious or cowardly or weak. But I'll never play a character whose name one dare not speak. <laughs> I'll
0: play Hamlet, <laughs> in doublet and hose or either of the dromeos, but sorry. I won't play Maclose. I'll play Richard the third with a hump and a week or Henry the Eighth that selfish pig, but sorry. I don't do Macas.
1: Every soul that plays this role is stingery or death. I'd rather sweep the bloody stage than ever do now. <laughs> so, give me, me Cleopatra, clear Romeo, Juliet, doesn't matter. I'll <laughs> play them all for free. But I'd be crackers to take on Macas. You see, I'm Scottish about a Scottish tragedy. Oh, i, I know. <laughs>